Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Weekly Walk. I'm your host, Joshua Ingram. It is Monday, January 24th, year of our Lord, 2022. That's a crazy thing to say that it's 2022 already. Life is truly a vapor. Like, just think, like, 2019 was just a blink ago. It seems like these last three years... Uh, just went by in like hyperdrive. It's it's pretty insane. That's just a moment, you know. Um, I'm gonna be forty this year. That that is crazy. That number don't even make sense coming out of my lips. Forty. That's such a crazy, weird, scary thing to be saying. You know, in my mind, it's like 1996 still. You know, I'm I'm I'm. <laughs> I am not 40 in my mind. Um, oh man, just the word 40 it sounds foreign. It's 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 ancient. It's it's sounds so untrue. But here we are. Anyways, um I wanted to talk about something here. Um I was thinking about um <clears throat> Just being bitter or um, discontent. Because here's here's what brings the thought. Lately, I've been waking up in the morning. And, like, my first thought is, like, unreal. You know, I, I can't believe I got to deal with another day. It's like I just, I'm, I wake up exhausted already. Like, the day has already, the prospect of the day has worn me out. And I'm just, I'm grieved by, um, life, you know, the, the process of life, the things I have to do for the day. It's like, man, I just don't want to do this, you know? And so I've been waking up lately with that attitude on my heart. And I don't know, for some reason, it just, I, I, I have a small group of uh, brothers and sisters that, uh, we, fellowship on a regular basis through the signal messenger app uh you know we have a group on there and we're in constant communication throughout the day and um that all started based on acts you know like believing that the church comes together and and fellowships not just on sundays or not just your wednesday small group like you ought to have a group of believers um that you can share with every single day that you're transparent with they they know your heart inside and out you open up to you share your thoughts your desires your faults your failures your struggles your irritations you're just completely transparent with them and and the hope is that we can encourage one another spur one another on um watch each other's back so to speak looking for cautions like if you see somebody going down the wrong road saying the wrong things we have to come together and deal with that. And so we have this small group that we just stay in communication with um, all, all week long, all day long. And so I woke up this morning and I was about to write in there uh, some irritation with the morning, you know, like, oh man, it's friggin' Monday again or something like that. And for some reason, I, I didn't have like any forethought on it. I just stopped and I was like, what, you know. How about just ask people what they're thankful for rather than me going in here complaining? And then it caused me to think about, um, or, or it led to the thought of Ephesians 5, uh, verses 3 and 4, where it says, But fornication 
and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as become a saint's. Neither fil filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. That rather giving of thanks, uh, I think, was the idea that stuck in my head and what caused me to look up that verse. And so I was looking at it, and I was like, does my bitter complaining apply to this verse? Because I, I, th that was the justification I was using for saying, hey, let's let's just talk about what we're thankful for rather than complaining about things. And then I was looking at this, and my first thought was, well, you know, that's kind of foolish talking. Because usually you, I read these verses, and I'm thinking it's talking about uh, perverse language, um, off-color jokes, um, just, you know, that, that, that's what coarse jesting is to me, you know, that, that, um, filthiness, just the way our language, you know, so often we just fall into perverse language or joking about things that shouldn't be joked about. Um, you know, if you, if you jokingly refer to somebody as a homosexual or something like that, it's like, that's a wicked sin. It shouldn't be joked about. So that's usually the context that I take those verses in. And so I was thinking, does my bitterness, does my irritation in the morning, does that fit in there? Uh, because, I, I, like I say, I wanted that rather giving of thanks to be applicable this morning. And so at first I was looking at foolish talking, but I, I don't think it fits there. Because I, I really do think that's talking about the, the joking around. The perverse jokes, the off-color jokes, the, the, the racy talk. Um, you know, and... and as saints, we're not ones given to cussing and swearing, um, but we use, uh, you know, uh, uh, you might use like a sexual innuendo or something to try to be funny. And, and so I think that would fall into that filthiness, foolish talking, jesting scenario there. So then I started looking at covetousness, and I think that's really what that is. When we wake up, or, or anytime, not just when we wake up, but when we're dissatisfied with life, what that really is, is coveting. You're coveting a different lot in life. You're, you're angry at the, the, the path that God has put you on. You're upset or feel cheated or robbed or feel like you've gotten the, 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 that God has given you less than somebody else. Because you're, you're looking at other people's lives and thinking that if I had this or if I had that or if I was here or if I was with this person or that person, things would be better. And that's coveting. You're coveting a different lot in life. God has assigned our boundaries in life, our times in life. He has given you the position, the space, the plot, the, 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 the area that you're in. God has put you there for a reason. You know, your there, God doesn't make mistakes. There are no errors. There are no uh, chaotic uh, parts to life. There's no chaos in life. Your your position, your lot is designed. You're exactly where you're supposed to be. You have exactly what you're supposed to have. You're with who you're supposed to be with. The people in your life are the ones that are supposed to be in your life. That is planned and programmed and designed by God for you. And so when we look at that and complain... Um, what, not only are we, we grumbling and murmuring against the sovereignty of God, but we're coveting something else. It's covetousness. And it says that covetousness shouldn't be named among us. It shouldn't be brought, not only, like, and I don't think that's saying that you shouldn't talk about it. I think it's like it, when somebody's thinking about a saint, the idea of covetousness ought not even to come up in their mind. It ought to be such a foreign concept that it, it falls 
far, far away from the idea of a Christian, uh, the idea of a saint. And so instead of coveting, we're supposed to give thanks. So when you wake up in the morning and, and, and you look at your dingy little apartment or you look around and think, uh, you know, I'm alone again, you know, I ain't got nobody here. Or when you think I got to go do this tedious job for minimal pay, that's coveting. You're coveting better pay. You're coveting a better uh, living situation. You're coveting um, a different uh, relationship status, whatever it is. It's covetousness. Instead of that, we're to be giving of thanks. We should be waking up and thinking, oh, praise God, I, I've got this warm bed. Um, or if you don't have a warm bed, praise God, I, I have breath and life. You know, and, and just we should be thankful for the lot the Lord has given us. You know, I, I can praise God uh, that I have warm clothing. You know, I always think about socks. I don't know why. I'm, I'm grateful for socks. I, I love nice, clean, new socks, and they're nice and warm. Just always rejoices me when I think about little things I'm thankful for. I always come to, th to I always think of socks, but I'm waking up. Um, I don't have any money, but my bills are paid, and I got food in the refrigerator, and I got gas in my tank. You know, that's all that matters. I've got a wide collection of books that I can read. Um, the Lord has blessed me with, uh, uh, you know, I've got a television to you know although wasting time watching tv you know i have that option i can be thankful for that i've got uh these little joys in my life uh i've got this nice purified bottled water um water cooler uh, i can rejoice in that i get to walk into the next room to go to work you know because because i work from home so i get to go to work in my pajamas I, I, there's so much I can be thankful for instead of waking up and complaining. Um, you know, it's been my habitual pattern to wake up and think, oh, this bed is so uncomfortable. My neck hurts again. My shoulder hurts again. So I'm so miserable, you know, and then you think, you know, I'm, I'm all alone here again. I ain't got nobody to talk to, nobody to share my life with. Um, I got to go do this job for minimal pay. You know, it's, I, I ain't got money to do anything I want to do. Um, that's habitually my thoughts when I wake up, you know, that complaining. And I think that that's what this is talking about. It's saying, you know, don't be covet, coveting, you know, I'm coveting more. I want more. I want different. I want better, you know, instead of just being content with what the Lord has given me and looking around and being thankful, thinking, man, I got fresh, clean towels. I've, I've got, uh, man, I got great toothpaste. You know, I'm just, I'm just looking around, thinking all the great things I got. I got uh, I got carpet on my floor. I've got uh, warm blankets. I've I've got furniture. I've got a chessboard I can play. I've got brothers and sisters that I can communicate with throughout the week. You know, just all these things that I could be rejoicing in. I have breath in my lungs. I'm relatively healthy. Uh, the the Lord has. I've got sight. I've got hearing. I've got taste. You know, I woke up. I didn't die in my sleep. You know, the Lord has offered me mercy again. His mercies are new every morning. Although I deserved to die yesterday, he has preserved me through another night. You know, that's the way we're supposed to think, that giving of thanks. But it's it's so easy to fall into complaining. And complaining is just a symptom of coveting. It's just a, 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 that grumbling and, and murmuring against God. That's just a symptom of coveting. Uh, we're, we're coveting a different lot in life. And um, 
Yeah, so um and it's it sucks that I know I'll fail in this. You know, it's like I say, it's so easy to fall into complaining. Then the next twenty minutes, I'm gonna find something I don't like about life. You know, and it's it it's just so easy to fall into that train of thought, and so difficult to just remain thankful. And so I, I'm I'm just hoping that you know, uh, the Holy Spirit will do His work in me and will cause me um, to set aside coveting and 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 foolish talking and and rather or instead give thanks giving of thanks one thing i think about often and it's uh something that's come up again recently is i don't really know how to phrase it um I suppose I'll just call it the strangeness of death. Um, I think about a couple different aspects of it. Uh, one is the way the lost world reacts to death is very um, just, I guess, unnatural or, or I guess the only word I can think of is strange. You think about how, like, somebody dies... And they celebrate that person or talk about that person in glowing terms, no matter what kind of lifestyle that person lived. Like I think about um, a few celebrities that have passed here recently. And you see on social media, people like, oh, RIP and blah, blah, blah. And for the born again Christian, they're like, if a person dies in their wickedness, there is no resting in peace. Um the next moment for that person after they breathe their last breath on this earth is a terror that we can't even imagine. You know, they wake up in hell if, if they die in unrepentant sin and, and unbelief. And especially like when a celebrity dies, you can see the fruit of their lives and just the, the vile wickedness that came forth from them. And... Unless they got saved, you know, in their last moments or whatever, but there's there's no hope for that person. There's just damnation and and like I say, it's it's unspeakable horror what happens to that person next, and everybody always celebrates them, and it's like it's just it's it's an odd thing, you know. Um, the other odd thing about it is is the way people are shocked when it happens. Everybody always is like, oh, no, or I can't believe, and blah, blah, blah. Even if the person who died was like 90-some years old, people are still, they react in shock. And, like, I, I don't understand that because death is appointed. We're all going to die. There is, like, that's something we all know, that death is inevitable. And yet people still act or react in a shocked manner to it. And it's very bizarre to me. It's, it's if anything, it, it should be an expected thing. There shouldn't be any shock. If someone dies, it should be like just, uh, yeah, you know, and it, it should be, it should cause an awareness to know that 
you too are going to die. It should cause um, an alert to go off in the head and say, man, that, that, but by the grace of God, that could be me. You know, like our, our moment is coming. Everybody has that appointment. And it's just, it, it's always just peculiar to see how the lost world reacts to it. And I suppose to, in a sense, even save people are, are it's weird that we're shocked by a death. Um, people always say, like, if it's a young person, they say, well, yeah, but he was so young. But, like, nobody's guaranteed tomorrow. Like, we, we know that. We observe that. Every day we see people die at various different ages. We've all experienced the death of people, um, you know, that didn't die of old age. They didn't die of natural causes, so to speak. And yet it's still always, people always act shocked when it happens. Like statistically, uh, what is it? 250,000 people die every day. Um, I think like if, if you do the math, that's like one out of every 107 or 118. I did the math one time. I can't remember what it is, but, um, uh, it's pretty high odds, you know, the, the odds are, you know, if you know 150 people, uh, one of them's going to die pretty soon, you know, and, and like, and it's a continuous thing. Death doesn't stop. So it's, it's very weird how people are shocked by it. And I've tried to wrap my mind around why, why are people shocked by it? And I don't know, I suppose there is an uncomfortableness with it. People don't know um, how to, to react to it. And I suppose if they were to think deeply about it, it would frighten them. So they don't want to think deeply about it, but it's, it's a good thing to consider your death. It's a good thing to, to number your days. You know, the scriptures say, teach me to number my days. Um, you know, none of us are, every one of us is going to have our last day someday. Like you, you wake up and that's it, you know, and most of the time, it, it comes suddenly and unexpectedly. Like, you didn't know. that You didn't have any forewarning. It's, it's you know, people who are, like, sick or something, they have forewarning, you know, especially if, like, you have a cancer or something like that, and they give you six months to live, you know, okay, I got this. But even then, you could die the next day. Like, like you you do not have tomorrow guaranteed. It's, it's, it's coming for us all. And... What that ought to do is cause people to be sober-minded and to think, okay, what's next? You know, I'm not guaranteed tomorrow. To, I, I could die tomorrow. What's going to happen to me then? And and that, so that's the other weird thing, too, is everybody expects to have more time. Even even a person who's 90-some years old, they're not expecting to die the next day. They're like somehow... They del- there's a great delusion that people cast upon themselves by by thinking they have more time, and it's it's a weird thing, you know. But but death ought to cause people to think soberly and to think, you know, am I prepared for what's next? Am I prepared for eternity? And 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 you know, if if people are lost, they're not. I I think that's. Part of that fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom to know that he holds your breath in his hands and he can snuff it out at any moment. That fear ought to cause people to seek him out. Um, but it's it's just a strange thing. So when a, a celebrity or somebody like that dies and people are celebrating them, 
there's a part of me that always wants to point out, you know, this person was a wicked person. You know, if you look at the fruit of their life, the things they said, the things they did, they were full of perversion and, and, and just wicked wickedness. Um, there's another part too, like we, we pray for the salvation of people. And when they die, there's a finality to that. It's almost like, okay, that like David, when, uh, I think it was David, right? When his, when his kid was sick, um, he fasted and prayed and was in sorrow the whole time the child was sick. And then when the sick, sick kid died, uh, that day he picked himself up, washed himself and went and ate. And people were perplexed by that. They were like, you know, where's the sorrow now? Why did you sorrow while he was alive? And David said, you know, well, I basically I had hoped that maybe the Lord would spare him. Now that I see what the Lord's sovereign hand is, that, that you know, this was unto his death. There's nothing more I can do. You know, he's gone. It's It's done. You know, I'll go to him, but he ain't coming back to me. And that's kind of the mindset um, I have with death, too. Like, when somebody dies, it's like, okay, that's over. Their opportunity is done. You know, they they're, they're, their judgment has been set. They either knew the Lord or they didn't. There's nothing more that can be done. Uh, we, we, we wept and we prayed uh, for the salvation of their souls while they were alive. Now that they're dead... Uh, it's, there's, it's almost like there's it's no more thought to be given to them. You know, they're at the judgment seat. It's they've moved on. It's done. They, there's nothing more that you can do. There's nothing, there's no more prayers that can be said for that person. It's over. And so I guess, I don't know. I, I, death is just, uh, I just, I don't like the way people think about it or the way people talk about it or the way society reacts to it. It to me, it just seems like a very, very strange, unnatural, and, and definitely unbiblical way to go about handling death. Uh, the way we should handle death, of course, there's an emotional. If somebody you love dies, there's you know you don't get to see them anymore, and so there's that sorrow, the like the sorrow of of going away. Um, if they're saved. We, we rejoice, though, because their job is done. Their mission is accomplished. The Lord has called them home. Their time's up, and, and now they're in glory. They, they don't have to deal with sin anymore. They don't have to deal with pain or suffering or sorrow. Uh, they're in glory, and so we should rejoice in that. And if a person that we love was lost, like I, I tremble to even think about that because it's like at that point, I don't even want to think about it because they, they've gone on to an unimaginable sorrow and suffering and torment. And so it's almost like you just got to put that out of your mind. And, and um, you know, I think the Lord gives us grace in that we don't know people's hearts. So we can always hold on to a little sliver of hope that maybe they did uh, finalize with Christ. Maybe they did seal the deal with Christ and, the, and, and they did get saved at some point or another, especially like our loved ones, you know, if you're living the gospel, you know, if you're living this faith, you're going to be speaking about the gospel to these people at some point in time. And so you have that hope that, you know, they heard the truth and, and perhaps we don't know what was going on in their hearts. Perhaps the Lord moved upon them and saved them. And so there's always that hope that we, we can have, uh, that is a gracious thing because otherwise we would we would be tormented thinking about them in hell. And so we're able to just 
grasp onto that little bit of hope. Plus, I always heard, I don't know if this is scientifically true or not, but I heard about this, I think, when I was a kid, that when a person dies, like the the brain functions um, still continue for like seven more minutes after the heart stops. And so I've always had this idea of like, who knows what's going on then? They still have thoughts. There's still a consciousness, perhaps. And so maybe the Lord meets them there. And, and the Lord, uh, you know, of course, we don't preach that because we, we don't know that. It's, what we know is that today is the day of salvation. People have to get right with God now. There's probably very few deathbed conversions you know, we th- the thief on the cross was converted at his death, but but to me, it would seem like that's a rare thing. It, it, it would seem like a person's death is, is a finality, like that that they've either rejected or accepted Christ um, already at that point, and and just a, a lip service of you know fake repentance because now they're facing doom. Uh, that that's not going to cut it. Um, but like I say, we can cling to hope that perhaps our, our lost family members did get saved at some point in time. And so we can, we can cling to that. But I get just the way, you know, I think about death is, is like, say when it's over, it's over. There's nothing more that can be done. I, you know, we weep and sorrow for our lost family now. And when they die, it, it's almost like in a cold callous way of saying it. You brush your hands, you know, you wash your hands of it. Uh, you know, they no longer have any opportunity. The The moment has passed. It's done. They're, they're gone now. Their fate is sealed. The Lord has done with them as he sees fit. And so there, there's nothing more you can you can do about it. Um, but I don't know. It, it just always, it, it's something I think about a lot, just the, the oddness of, of how people react to death and then, Whenever somebody really famous or whatever hap- whatever dies and social media is a buzz with it, it always causes me to think about it. Um, like I say, because you always see people like celebrating that person's life and, and their life ought not to be celebrated. Like the scriptures talk about when the wicked perish. Um, oh, what the heck does that proverb say? You know, it's uh, but there's all sorts of scriptures. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of one of saints. Uh, but the wicked are cut off and are no more. It's like they're they're done, um, and and like there's just a finality to it. Like it it doesn't. And like I say, I know there's emotional grief when when a person that you're close to dies. There's an emotional grief because you can't see him anymore. But it's almost like okay, that's done. They're 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 it's over. It, there's that part of me that thinks that way. That's like okay. It's it's time to move on. Um, I had them on my heart and my mind while they were alive, but now that they're dead, there's nothing more that can be done. Um, so let let's focus on the remaining souls that still have a chance to be saved. But anyways, uh, just some thoughts I was having about death. I heard a. Um clip from a sermon about so the question was basically knowing that God is sovereign over all things and that he created all things everything is by his design is sin part of his plan or or I'm sorry they they said uh 
did God plan sin? And this is something that is often thought about. I think this is really probably at the heart of the free will um, sovereignty debate or Calvinism, Arminianism, however you'd want to define it. Because um, I think a lot of people struggle with this idea. We, we know that God is not the author of sin. Um, so what does author mean? Well, well, first of all, because I think people, they have a hard time wrestling this out. So instead of um, being remaining unclear on it and just sticking to the scriptures, uh, they gravitate towards this free will idea that, that uh, because God gave us free will, therefore sin was created because of free will decisions that we made. And they kind of take God out of the equation um, to ease their minds or to ease their theological viewpoints or whatever it is. But um, that's just erroneous. It's it's not the way you don't reject all the scriptures that talk about uh, God working all things according to the counsel of his will. That's all things. And all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. And all things were created by him and for him and through him and his predestinating work and uh, knowing the beginning from the end and, and, and uh, planning the beginning from the end. Uh, you know, prophecies show that God determines things ahead of time. Uh, verses like Amos, shall evil befall a city and I have not done it, says the Lord. Or um, uh, Joseph being sold into slavery and then later revealing that that was God behind it, God purposed that. Or the crucifixion of Christ, which was a murderous evil, but that was foreordained and designed by God. Um, just countless other things. We We can't just throw all that away because we're uncomfortable with the idea of sin existing and trying to figure out how a sovereign, good, loving God who is not the author of sin can be completely sovereign and yet there's still sin. And so some people dismiss it just by saying, well, it's a mystery of sin, uh, which I think is a lot more biblical than saying, oh, free will caused it. Um, there is a mystery there because it's it's... So with all those with all the scriptures that we know, we know that God has designed all things. That from beginning to end, Christ was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. From the very foundation of the world, the plan was in place for Christ to be crucified. And so when you backtrack from that event to figure out okay, what did it take to get there? You see it took the fall. The fall had to occur. We, we had to fall in order for us to be saved. There had to be um, something to be redeemed from. We had to come under the curse in order for the plan to, to play out. And we know the end is written. Christ is going to return and, and wipe out uh, the beast kingdom and the false prophet and, and all those who have taken the mark. So, so that is going to happen. That's the plan. There's, there's no stopping it. Uh, we know that death is appointed. It's appointed unto man to die once. We all have an appointment with death that's planned. It's the day our our days are numbered. You know the the steps of a righteous man are ordered of God. Every step we take, every decision we make, is ordered of God. So then, it all comes back to this thing. Well, then where did sin come from? How how is there sin in the world? 
If God's not the author of sin, then how is there sin? If he created all things and he designs all things and he brings about all these events to fulfill his purposes and those events include sinful acts, how is he not the author? And so like that that's a theological question that's been debated for centuries. And it really is a mysterious thing. Like like if you if you trace it all the way back to even before the fall cuz Satan obviously had to sin first because he came into the garden as the serpent and tempted, so he was in disobedience already. How, how did he sin? How did the angels that fo followed Satan, how did they sin? Like, where did sin come from? Um, it's a mysterious thing. I think about that proverb where God talked about how he planted a garden and then went to sleep and, in the, and then woke up the next day and saw there were weeds. And said, an enemy hath done this, an enemy planted these weeds. I think that ties into this. But it is a very mysterious thing. It's like, if God is sovereign and in control of all things, nothing occurs to God. God is not surprised by anything. Like, he knew when he created Satan, that Satan would rebel and fall. That was part of the plan. Because Christ was crucified from the foundation of the world. The fall of Satan had to occur so that Satan could be in the garden to tempt Adam and Eve. That had to occur. That was part of the plan. Before God ever said, let there be, before he even started to create anything, he had everything designed and planned. Um, so obviously sin was part of his plan. But did God plan sin? I think there's a distinction there. And... um. I think we have to rest on the idea that it's mysterious. We, we have to take all these biblical facts that we know and then just trust what we don't know. We, we know that God designed all things, that he counseled all things, that he purposed all things, that everything is under his sovereign design, that every single movement and molecule in life uh, moves along the plan of God. Nof there's, there's no chaos factor in creation. Nothing happens that God has not planned for it to happen. No, nothing occurs that, that God did not design. Nothing catches him off guard. Nothing is unknown by God. So we have to take that, and then we have to take the fact that God is not the author of sin, that he, he is holy and righteous, and in him is no darkness, none at all. There is no sin in him. So we have to take these two seemingly contradictory ideas and hold to them both without compromising one or another. Those who go with the free will, they compromise that sovereignty of God in order to ease the idea of sin. Um, so so they, they, waver, they compromise one side of the coin to justify the other side of the coin, but we have to hold to both positions without compromising. And if we can't reconcile that in our minds, if we can't figure out how that all works together in our minds, we have to be okay with that. We have to just submit to that and say, well, I don't really know how sin exists, but I know it does, and I know it's part of God's plan. Um, and I know he's not the author of it. That's all I know. How that all ties together, I don't know. I have a theory, which is why I'm speaking right now. Um, I heard this a long time ago. I, th I don't remember who was credited with this idea, um, I think it was like Einstein or Newton or 
some some famous scientist when asked if if God exists probably wasn't Einstein I don't think he was well he wasn't an atheist I don't think I think he was probably like a deist or something I don't, I don't know but the question was asked um, in in the the story I've heard oh, excuse me is that the question is asked in the setting of an acad- in an academic setting it's in like a classroom and the question is um, does God exist and of course you know you have all these liberal philosophy professors that that like to say oh you can't see him you can't smell him you can't taste him you can't feel him. Uh, therefore, there's no observable factual evidence of God's existence. Uh, therefore, you can't say he exists. And so, Newton or whoever it was, or maybe it's just falsely accredited to one of these people, but uh, the response was, well, professor, does cold exist? And the professor, you know, well, of course cold exists. You can feel cold. We can measure temperature. We can we can define when it's cold. And um, the person answer, asking the question said, well, no, cold is not an actual thing in itself. It doesn't exist. Cold is merely the absence of heat. Heat is the thing that we measure. Heat is the, the, the tangible thing. It's the real thing. When heat is removed, what is left is cold. To the extent that heat is removed from something, the colder it gets. So cold isn't a thing in itself. Cold is the absence of heat. And and then uh, what they went on to say, does does darkness exist? Is there such a thing as dark? And, and people, of course, you can see darkness. You know, we experience darkness. And the answer is, well, no, darkness isn't an actual thing in itself. Light is the thing. We measure light. Or the and, and the absence of light is what is dark. When light is removed, uh, what is left is dark. So dark is not a thing in itself. It's merely the absence of light. Cold is not a thing in itself. It's merely the absence of heat. And to the extent or level that you remove heat or light, you get uh, more cold or more dark. And to me, that makes a whole lot of sense. Like, if you think about it, like... Um, because God is defined as light. And, and God is the source. It, the, he's called the Father of lights, from which proceed all goodness. Everything good, everything pure, everything holy, everything lovely, everything righteous. That God is the source of that. In the same way that the sun is the source of our light and heat, God is the source of all goodness. And so if the source is removed, the further we're removed from the sun, S-U-N, the colder and darker it gets. And so the further we remove ourselves from God, the, the, uh, what is the opposite of righteousness? What is the opposite of holiness? What is the opposite of good? What, what would be left? And what is left is sin, you know, darkness, evil. When, when good is removed, evil is left. So dark is the natural consequence of the absence of light. Cold is the natural consequence of the absence of heat. And and evil, uh, in my opinion, my theory, is the natural consequence of the removal of good, the removal of God. 
when, when God is removed, what is left naturally by cause and effect is evil. If you remove the source, what's left is the absence of the source. And so if God is the source of good, to remove God, you, you, you're left with evil. Evil is the natural consequence of the removal of good. And so I believe that So we couldn't say that light caused darkness or that heat caused cold. No, heat causes heat, light causes light. The, the removal of that leaves an absence of it. So it's a, it's a natural cause and effect. It's, it, it doesn't, it's not the source, light is not the source of dark. It's merely removing itself and what is left is dark. And so God is not the author of evil. He didn't create evil. It's simply if God removes himself or distance himself uh, or separates himself, what is naturally left is evil. And so knowing that, knowing that he is the source of all goodness, if he backs off, if he stops pouring good into a person, if he stops... So every good, every righteous, every holy thing we do is caused by him. He is the source. He, he's the, the, the movement through us that causes us to think good, that causes us to have the motivation to do good, that causes us to do good. He's the source of that in the same way that light the, or the sun is the source of light. And so when he removes even just a little bit, if he just backs off, if he doesn't pour goodness into us, what is left, the natural consequence is evil. And so by part in his holy, wise, sovereign plan, he knows exactly how much of himself to remove or, or to not pour in or whatever in order um, to leave behind evil events, knowing that the natural heart of man is wicked because we are not God. We are not the source of good. So if the source is removed from us, what is left is going to be evil. It's going to be unrighteousness. It's going to be selfishness. And so part, in, in order to, for God's plan and purpose to be fulfilled the way he designed it, he, he removes himself to varying levels, varying degrees, and what's left behind is evil actions. So when we are created, God knowing, if I remove myself, like I'm speaking foolishly here, but let's say 10%, this person is going to do this, this, and this evil. If I remove myself 20%, they're going to do this, this, and this evil. 30%, they're going to do so on and so forth. So the removal of God, or or more accurately, the... the um, denial of pouring goodness into a person, um, caught what's left behind is us doing what we desire to do, doing selfish, evil, unrighteous activities. And so uh, part of God's design includes that removal, and that's why I think it was called the fall. When Adam and Eve ate from the tree, we fell from the presence of God. We were in the presence of God. We had the source of goodness moving through our being, causing us to do good. And the fall caused us to be separated from God. Uh, as a matter of fact, we became dead to God. We became completely separated. We, we, we were spiritually dead. We no longer had a connection with God. So the, all that's left is evil. 
And the only reason that any good or righteousness happens is that God, uh, through his sovereign grace, decides to pour into people and cause them to do good. If he didn't do that, all that would be left would be evil. We would all uh, act upon our selfish, self-preservation uh, motives and desires. We would all do evil. We would all do wickedness. But God uh, pours himself in um, to varying levels and degrees to prevent us from doing all the evil that we would do and to cause us to do good. And so it's all part of his design and plan the 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 amount of himself that he causes to be poured into people and and the amount that he restrains himself and what is left is the natural consequence of the absence of the source of good which is evil and so evil or sin and wickedness is is a natural consequence of the absence of good it's 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 the ebb and flow it's the cause and effect and so sin is the removal of god and so in, in in eternity past, when he created Satan at some point, God uh, was obviously pouring into these angels. He's the source. So all the good, that the, all the holiness they were doing was coming from him. He, his, his, the source of goodness moving through these angels. And at some point, for his holy and wise purposes, he, he restrained that source to an extent from pouring into Satan. And the natural outcome was... was the absence of good what was it caused in a sense it, or or it led to um satan doing evil because evil is the absence of good so so god in eternity past removed himself uh to an extent from satan and the natural consequence was that satan acted selfishly pridefully and sinned and then fell and then god removed himself from Eve or, or whatever to an extent, and that led to the natural consequences of, of her desiring uh, to disobey God, to de desire uh, the sinfulness of the, of the flesh or whatever. And um, that brought about, you know, all of history. So anyways, uh, that's kind of how I reconcile it in my mind, how, how I deal with that idea. Um, God is sovereign, and sin exists, and God is not the author of sin. And, and so that's how it makes sense in my mind. Alright, so that's what I got for you guys this week. Um, as always, I truly appreciate you listening. I love you, and Lord willing, we'll talk to you next time.